Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 75. It's about World War I then, what was happening a hundred years ago this week, and it's about World War I now, news and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. This week, Mike Schuster updates us on the fighting fronts around the world. Ed Lengel tells the story of the machine gunners at Chateau Thierry. Meredith Carr gives us a preview of commemorative events planned for the upcoming centennial of the Armistice. Dr. Peter Jacob introduces us to the World War I programming at the National Air and Space Museum. Jeff Loudermilk joins us from the New Mexico World War I Centennial Commission. Donna Ching shares the 100 Cities 100 Memorials Project in Honolulu. Catherine Aiki highlights the commemoration of World War I in social media. And a whole lot more on World War I Centennial News, a weekly podcast brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and the Star Foundation. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. As we screen the stories running 100 years ago this week in the New York Times and the official bulletin, the government's War Gazette, a major U.S. domestic theme took front and center. The Germans were trying to bring the war to our shore. U-boats were cruising off our eastern seaboard, threatening our merchant shipping and sinking ships. Though the loss of life was minimum, the psychological effects were powerful, and the media was speaking to it. With that as a setup, we're going to jump into our centennial time machine and go back 100 years this week in the war that changed the world. From the front page of the official bulletin published by George Creel's Committee for Public Information. Dateline, Monday, June 3, 1918. Headline, three American ships sunk off New Jersey coast by enemy submarines. Crews are rescued. And the story reads, Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, authorizes the following statement. The Navy Department has been informed that three American schooners have been sunk off this coast by enemy submarines. The Secretary's statement closes with, the Navy Department is taking the necessary steps to safeguard the shipping along the coast. And the next day in the Bolton. Dateline, Tuesday, June 4, 1918. Headline, Navy announces now five U.S. ships sunk by submarines off Atlantic coast. One life known lost. Steamship Carolina not heard from since reported under fire of U-boat Sunday afternoon. Oil tanker among the vessels reported lost. Later, in the same issue of the Bolton, there's a first-person account of the attack. It's an account of how these attacks went throughout the week. Headline. Steamer Bristol chased by submarine after picking up Schooner Cole's crew. Latter saw second steamship sunk. And the story reads, The captain of the Bristol reported, On June 2nd at 4.30, I sighted a lifeboat with 11 men. The crew of the American schooner Edward H. Cole. 
The coal having been sunk by a submarine at 3.30 p.m. about 50 miles southeast of Bernaget Light. The crew of the coal say that the submarine was about 200 feet long and was armed with two 6-inch guns. About 3 p.m., the coal sighted the submarine on the starboard bow about 2,000 yards away. He circled around and came up on their port side. The submarine commander told the captain and the crew to get in their boats, saying that he was going to sink the vessel. Then he came aboard and examined the ship's papers and at the same time gave the captain seven and a half minutes to leave the ship. About 15 minutes after the crew got away from the coal, it sank. Four bombs had been placed on the vessel, two on each side and some were placed about the deck. The submarine stayed until the crew rowed to the northwest. One hour later, when we were about four miles from the submarine, another steamship appeared close up to the submarine, which fired five times before she altered her course. On Wednesday, another front-page story in the Bolton. Dateline, Wednesday, June 5, 1918. Headline, U.S. Destroyer Stops U-Boat Attack on French Steamer Off Maryland Coast. Warship also takes on board man from the Edward Bayard, bombed and sinking. Another story in the same issue lists 11 U.S. ships reported to Navy as sunk by submarines. The article goes on to read off the names of the ships, the smallest of which was a 436-ton schooner and the largest a steamship at 7,200 tons. Then an article from the New York Times... Headline, Texel sunk, 36 survivors landed. Former Dutch steamer attacked by a U-boat 60 miles from the city. Fired without warning, shrapnel rained on deck. Men reach Atlantic City lighthouse in small boats. And the story reads, 36 survivors of the steamer Texel, a former Dutch ship which recently had been operated by the United States Shipping Board, was sunk without warning 60 miles off New York Harbor. It was Sunday afternoon at 421. The crew in lifeboats landed at a nearby lighthouse just before midnight. A cargo of 42,000 tons of sugar, valued at $20 a ton, was lost. The total loss was more than $2 million. The stories go on throughout the week and beyond, with articles providing first-hand accounts of the attacks. Many times, in attacking the unarmed merchant ships, the U-boats would fire warnings from guns, come aboard, examine papers, get the crew to abandon ship, and blow them up with bombs rather than wasting torpedoes. If the ships were armed or fought back, the submarines would stand off and torpedo them. The general loss of life was not large, but the disruption to shipping in our eastern seaboard was profound. We've posted a lot of our research links for you in the podcast notes. The most compelling are the first-person accounts of the attacks, as the Germans bring the war to our shore. A hundred years ago this week, and the war that changed the world. Now this week, for the war in the sky a hundred years ago, we can easily stay on the theme of the war on our shore with two stories, and then we head overseas to pick up the action there. Dateline, June 5, 1918. Headline, City Lights Out in Air Raid Test. Aviators make observations preliminary to possible darkening of the streets. Anti-aircraft guns ready. System of siren signals arranged to warn people of dangers from the skies. And the story reads, 
Electric signs and all lights, except street lamps and lights in dwellings, were out in the city last night in compliance with orders issued by police commissioner and the suggestion of the War Department, as a precaution against a possible attack by aircraft from a German submarine. While the probability of raids by aircraft from submarines is not considered to be great, officers of the Army and Navy urged that every precaution be taken in spite of the difficulties attending to such an operation, to assemble an airplane on a submarine and launch it for a raid is held to be far from impossible. And another article? Dateline, June 3, 1918. Headline, Aero Club wants more aviators to hunt U-boats here. And the story reads, Extension of the airplane mail service is to give long-distance flight training to American aviators to fit them for seeking out submarines, which now have appeared off the coast. Meanwhile, from the war in the skies over Europe, a story in the New York Times reads, Dateline, June 2, 1918. Headline, Campbell, First Ace of America. California pilot honored as well as two others who flew with Lafayette Corps. Campbell downs fifth adversary. And the story reads, The first American-trained ace has arrived. This morning, Lieutenant Douglas Campbell of California brought down his fifth Bosch plane in a fight back of our lines. Besides Campbell, America has two other aces, a Major William Thaw and a Captain Peterson. But both Thaw and Peterson got their training in the Lafayette Escadrille. Campbell, on the other hand, never trained with any other outfit but the Americans, and never did any air fighting before he arrived on the American front a few weeks ago. Campbell is the son of the chief astronomer of the Lick Observatory near Pasadena, California. He joined the American Air Force after the United States entered the war, and came to France and began practice flying last fall. He is 22 years old, and he is the first to get the credit of being a Simon Pure American ace. And in a final story from the New York Times, we have a frontline correspondent story about the growing Allied air superiority in France. Dateline, June 7, 1918. Headline, Air Superiority re one Allied bombers operate with impunity on the French battlefront. And the story reads, In the valley of the Savier, our bombardment squadrons threw more than 17 tons of bombs on enemy troop concentrations, says last night's communique. The New York Times correspondent today visited one of the finest aviation groups in the French army and learned a first-hand story of that exploit. In the early afternoon, the airmen were informed that a large number of Germans were assembling in the valley on the Savier, a little river whose course is almost parallel to the front. Owing to the configuration of the ground, they were sheltered from the fire of artillery, and it was evident that they intended to reinforce the German move westward into the forest of the Villers Cotterets. A first squadron of bomb planes were sent out, then a second. At first, no Germans were visible. Then, circling low, the airmen discovered the enemy hiding in the horseshoe woods on the eastern side of the valley. Again, the German battalions were subjected to a terrible bombardment amidst the trees that gave no protection. 
Before the decimated units could reform, the first squadron had returned with a new load. Once more, the wood was filled with the roar of explosion. No human morale could stand such a triple strain. In vain, the German officers tried to reform their panic-stricken men. When the French infantry counterattacked, they had an easy victory over the weakened forces that had made the advance. And those are some of the stories a hundred years ago this week from the War in the Sky. Let's move on to the Great War Project with Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. Mike, your post this week includes a really interesting and relatively unknown skirmish near the village of Montsec, when the U.S. forces get thrown off of a hill there for one night, and the Germans use that for propaganda that the Americans can't fight. Of course, that turns out to be quite incorrect, but things are far from rosy at this point, aren't they? Far from rosy is exactly right, Teo. So the headline reads, A million Americans now in France fighting again in Russia calls for statehood in Central Europe new challenges in the Middle East, and this is special to the Great War Project. The mutual discord between Allied leaders and the American commanding general John J. Pershing often reaches a level of frank dislike, but it is not confined to the American commander alone. So notes one British officer assigned as liaison for the Allied command. While I was having tea with Lloyd George, the British prime minister, the PM astonished me by starting in to tell me what a foul commander they had in the field, Sir Douglas Haig. It's unbelievable, writes the liaison officer. He lost 700,000 men last summer unnecessarily, Lloyd George complained. I want to remove him, but I cannot find anybody to replace him. Then the PM started in on how badly General Pershing was behaving. This is a moment of terrible distrust and indecision for all the Allies. And it is a moment that needed anything but mistrust that France, Britain, and now the United States are going to win the war. Indeed, amidst all this fruitless squabbling, the American Expeditionary Forces, or AEF, were now growing rapidly. Between April and July 1918, writes historian Gary Mead, about one million American soldiers stepped off the boat in France. The German offensives were initially very successful that spring, writes Meade, in quantity of munitions, tanks, aircraft, and artillery. The Americans are now making up much of that considerable superiority. One place in northern France that the Allies hold is the village of Montsec. It is thought to be the most impregnable position in all of France, and at this point, the Americans hold it. The two sides fight night after night there, but little changes. One night that spring, a century ago, the Germans attacked the Americans there. The fighting is savage. The Germans seize the heights that night, but then withdraw the next morning. The Doughboys had the humiliating experience, writes historian Mead, of being allowed to reoccupy what they were expected never to lose in the first place. Mead continues, the Germans made the most of this early success against the Americans, going so far as to deliver lengthy reports with pictures of the affair to neutral countries. Berlin Radio even broadcast an account of how the Americans had been resoundingly thumped. Something would have to be done, writes Meade, to recover what was for Pershing a dreadful loss of face. The mood in the Allied camp is terribly gloomy. More than ever, writes historian Meade, the Americans needed to prove themselves. Meanwhile, although most of the war news is dominated by France and the Western Front, there is still a war in the East. Fighting is spreading in Russia once again, reports historian Martin Gilbert, and Gilbert adds the political and military wars were marching side by side. Important developments occur in Eastern Europe and the Middle East as well. 
On June 3rd, the Allies announced their full support for Polish, Czech, and Yugoslav statehood. The next day, under pressure from Britain and especially from T.E. Lawrence, the Zionist leader, Chaim Weizmann, meets with Emir Faisal, the leader of the Arab revolt at Aqaba. And at that moment in towns all over Ukraine, thousands of Jews are being murdered, Gilbert reports, by anti-Bolshevik forces whose historic anti-Semitism combined with a new hatred of pro-Bolshevik Jews now in control of the Russian government. And that's some of the news from the Great War Project this week, a century ago. Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog. The link to his post is in the podcast notes. And that leads us to America Emerges, military stories from World War I with Dr. Edward Langle. The Americans turn out to be fierce fighters, despite all initial uncertainty coming from the French and the British allies, and of course, the German propaganda that these guys are no fighters. Ed's here to tell us about how one division, the third, proved their worth in battle. Ed? The U.S. 3rd Division proudly calls itself Rock of the Marne. It earned that title in the spring and summer of 1918 when the division helped turn back major German attacks across the Marne River in France. The Doughboys' work began on May 31, 1918 at a little village called Chateau Thierry. American machine gunners were first to fight. French commanders didn't trust the U.S. 3rd Division. It had been formed in November 1917 from regular army units scattered across North America, but it was never actually assembled in the United States. Instead, 3rd Division troops, including infusions of draftees, were shipped to Europe in separate parcels and brought together behind the lines. Division Commander General Joseph T. Dickman was perhaps the most combat experienced of all American generals. His men liked him, and he was a solid tactician, but he never forgave the French for underestimating his division. The German offensive of May 27th shattered French lines along the Chemin de Dame. Fears that the Germans would drive directly on Paris led to calls for the American 2nd and 3rd Division to rush to the front to stem the tide. Since American machine gun formations had their own motor transport, they got there first. On the afternoon of May 31st, 1918, troops of the 3rd Division's 7th Machine Gun Battalion arrived at the front badly battered. Their maniac drivers had driven them full speed along potholed and rutted roads in sturdy Model T Ford trucks. They arrived like the U.S. Cavalry in a gigantic cloud of dust at a bridge spanning the Marne River into Chateau Thierry. French troops cheered wildly. The American machine gunners were assigned to the French 10th Colonial Division, defending the sector. As the Americans deployed, French Senegalese troops from Africa fought savagely to keep the Germans out of the town. French General Jean-Baptiste Marchand, an African explorer, directed the Americans to set up posts in houses and a sugar refinery overlooking the river. One section of Company A, with 12 men and two machine guns under Lieutenant John T. Bissell, was sent across the bridge into Chateau Thierry to scout and fight alongside the colonials. The Senegalese beat back the Germans on May 31st, but on June 1st, the enemy attacked again in one of the war's most dramatic actions. German infantry broke into Chateau Thierry at several points. The Senegalese fought house to house. Bissell's guns and other American machine guns south in the Marne opened fire, hitting the Germans hard, but there were not enough to stop them. Finally, a brave German captain charged across the bridge with a dozen men, hoping to capture it. American and French machine guns at a roadblock stopped him flat. To their horror, the Germans realized the bridge was about to blow and raced back for their lives. The captain and a few others made it, 
the rest were blown sky high. Lieutenant Bissell and his section barely made it out of Chateau Thierry in time by using an old railroad bridge. The village was lost, but the German offensive stopped at the riverside. From here on, American forces would remain in combat nonstop until the war ended. The 3rd Division would battle a major German offensive along the Marne on July 15th. First, though, the 2nd Division would enter combat at Bellow Wood. Dr. Edward Lengel is an American military historian, author, and our segment host for America Emerges, Military Stories from World War I. There are links in the podcast notes to Ed's posts and his websites as an author. And that's what was happening a hundred years ago this week. Now it's time to fast forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. This part of the podcast focuses on now and how we're commemorating the centennial of World War I. In commission news, with the centennial of the armistice only six months away, the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission is preparing for a national commemoration of this very significant moment on November 11, 2018. Of course, Armistice Day has evolved into Veterans Day, but this year it's marked with very special significance as the centennial of the end of World War I. Meredith Carr, the Deputy Director of the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, is heading up the initiative of what will happen on November 11th, and we thought it would be great to have her come on the show and give us a heads up on what we can expect both in Washington, D.C. and around the nation. Meredith, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Tao. It's great to be here. So, Meredith, I have to give everybody a little insider information. Way back in 2013, Meredith used to host a weekly conference call for all the organizations planning the World War I Centennial. And that very same conference call is what evolved into this podcast. So welcome home, Meredith. Thank you very much. Yes, the early days of what we called the sync call. And I'm sure some of your listeners were part of my early team that did that every Wednesday at noon. We've come a very long way, Teo, and um, (laughs) the podcast. It's a wonderful transition from that sync call. Let's talk about some of the events the commission's got planned to commemorate the end of World War I on November 11th this year. Can you start by telling us about the event at the Washington National Cathedral? Absolutely. So we're really excited about our signature events this year to commemorate the centennial of the armistice. This year, November 11th falls on a Sunday. So we're so excited to partner with the Washington National Cathedral here in D.C., for a sacred interfaith worship service that Sunday morning, beginning around 10 a.m. The worship service will remember the sacrifices of the 4.7 million Americans who served in the Great War, and it will honor the role the U.S. military has played in preserving peace and liberty around the world for the last 100 years. So it will start with real commemoration and remembrance and switch to a message of peace. If I'm not in Washington, D.C., you've got some other programs that everyone around the country can participate in, a bell tolling in specific. Can you tell us about that? As part of the sacred service, we're really excited to launch really grassroots program called Bells of Peace, a World War I Remembrance. This is a program where we encourage American citizens and organizations across the whole country to toll bells in their communities 21 times at 11 a.m. As you know, the armistice took effect on the 11th day, the 11th hour of the 11th month. So 11 o'clock a.m. 
anyone's local time, so starting on the East Coast and rolling through the rest of the country, we will encourage everyone to take part in Bells of Peace. We are developing this program with our commemorative partners and our stakeholders to really honor the American men and women who served 100 years ago in World War I. For all those people who may not have a bell, we're actually developing an app so that they can participate on their smartphones. That's right, Taya. We are in development of an app that will allow organizations and even individuals download the app on their phone and participate across the globe. You can upload photos of your bell tolling and use a recording of a bell for that 21 bell toll if you don't have a bell to ring. So we really encourage this to be a national commemoration, like you said, not just in Washington, D.C. We need your help. We need everyone's help to spread the word, our stakeholders, our partners, our communities. We will soon have a landing page on our website for frequently asked questions and how you can participate. Now, I know it's a little early, but you also have plans coming together for what's going to be happening at Pershing Park in Washington, D.C. Can you tell us what the park is and what the plans are? Absolutely. So for your listeners that do not know, Pershing Park is the site that has been designated by the U.S. Congress to be the National World War I Memorial. So since it will be the centennial of the armistice, we wanted to do something in Pershing Park. So we're planning a series of programs for the week of November 5 through 12. It will include events like film and documentary screenings, musical performances, potential exhibits, things for school children. The capstone of that will be the unveiling screening of Soldier's Journey, a production we are doing that tells the story of the World War I sculpture that is being done by Sabin Howard that will be in the park. It'll be about a 15-minute broadcast. I would also like to mention that shorter video vignettes will be available to all of our partners and stakeholders to use in their respective commemorative events across the country and it will be available this fall. Another resource that will be great for all of these events, we're calling them Armistice Centennial Events, or ACE, as it were. We'll have the sample liturgy that we're using at the cathedral for other churches across the country to use. We have collected beautiful content to include hymns and poems and readings that could be used in in local commemorative events. So we will make sure all of this is available to everyone across the country as they do their own things across the U.S. and the globe. I'll make sure all of our listeners have all that information as we get closer. We're still about six months out. It sounds like there's some wonderful plans coming together, and we're going to have you back on the show to keep us updated because I think the point is really to give everybody the tools and the ideas and the resources so that the armistice of World War I can be commemorated all across the country. Thank you. Thanks so much. It was great to be here. Meredith Carr, Deputy Director of the World War I Centennial Commission. Follow the links in the podcast notes to learn more about the upcoming World War I commemoration events across the country. A Century in the Making is our ongoing narrative about the National World War I Memorial at Pershing Park in Washington, D.C. This week, CBS News Radio is running a story where host Chaz Henry, himself a retired U.S. Marine Corps captain, did an extended interview for CBS Eye on Veterans with Commissioner Edwin Fountain and memorial designer Joe Weishar, recorded at Pershing Park. The segment will air Saturday, June 9th between 6 and 8 p.m. Eastern, and then again on Sunday, June 10th between 2 and 4 p.m. Eastern. You'll find the interview at around 34 minutes into the show, and it runs for nearly 25 minutes, an interesting perspective on the memorial not to be missed. 
Here's a brief introduction with host Chaz Henry. CBSI on Veterans, presented by Wells Fargo. Tucked away just off Washington, D.C.'s National Mall is a block-long park featuring a statue of World War I General John Pershing. The general's uh, lifting a pair of binoculars to a lookout on the, to the battlefield. What he's really looking out onto, though, it was a park that was built in the 1980s, which has since become quite run down. There are plans, though, to renovate the site as a memorial to those who served during the First World War. Edwin Fountain of the World War I Centennial Commission says it's only fair given monuments on the mall to the Korean and Vietnam Wars. We lost more men in combat in World War I in about six months of serious fighting than we lost in 16 years in Vietnam. Chaz Henry, ConnectingVets.com for CBS News. For this week's commemoration events section. We're very pleased to welcome Dr. Peter Jacob, Chief Curator at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Dr. Jacob. Nice to talk to you. Dr. Jacob, let me start by asking you about curation. Now, World War I is an incredibly important moment for flight technology, and a lot of the planes and materials from the era are lost to time. How do you approach this really complex period in aviation history? Well, we're fortunate at the National Air and Space Museum to have one of the world's premier collections of World War I aircraft. We have nearly 20 original aircraft from that period. In fact, our most recent acquisition was just a few months ago, an original Sopwith Camel, British World War I fighter. So we're really fortunate to have a, an amazing collection. Uh, although the Camel just came to us quite recently, a number of these aircraft actually were transferred to the Smithsonian just after the war from the War Department. So we got them just after the war, and we preserved them for a century here at the museum. The National Air and Space Museum is hosting this wonderful exhibit called Artist Soldiers. That's a great exhibit, and it's not particularly about flight. It's about all sorts of imagery. How did you wind up doing that at the Air and Space Museum? Well, we have a dedicated art gallery at the National Air and Space Museum, so we rotate art exhibitions all the time. And Artist Soldiers, Artistic Expression in the First World War, is a collaborative exhibition with the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. The collection that they have is AEF War Art. These were eight professional illustrators who were commissioned in the American Army uh, during World War I, and their mission was to go over and capture the experience of the AEF soldiers in the moment in a very realistic way and to communicate that back to folks back home and to try to share what that experience was and, of course, drum up support for the soldiers in France. So about 700 works of art were created by the AEF artists. About 500 of those have been preserved in the collection at the American History Museum. And they've been shown only in an extensive way one time. Back in the 1920s, there was a large exhibition on the Great War at the Smithsonian. So for the most part, these are unseen works of art that have not been seen in living memory. The exhibition also features contemporary art photographs taken of some extraordinary spaces underground in France. These were shelters that soldiers on all sides used during the war. Everyone, of course, is very familiar with the trenches of World War I. But adjacent to the trenches were abandoned stone quarries. These were stone quarries that had been used for centuries for castles, cathedrals, that sort of thing. But during the war, they were used as refuge for the soldiers. There were even some battles down in these spaces. But what's really fascinating is you see stone carvings that the soldiers did on the walls. Again, these are abandoned stone quarries. So the walls, the floor, the ceiling are all stone. 
and they left these artworks for posterity. And a number of years ago, a photographer by the name of Jeff Gusky had gotten permission to go down into these spaces and has created these amazing art photographs of the stone carvings left by the soldiers. All great historical events are really made up of the experiences of individuals. And that is really reflected in the artwork that we display in the museum. And it's really striking stuff. It's, it's really beautiful. You have an upcoming musical event called The Yanks Are Coming, The Songs of World War I. Could you tell us about that? Yes, we have a four-year-long program here at the Air and Space Museum. We began in 2014, which includes, of course, the exhibition we just talked about, but also a wide variety of programming. Uh, last year, we had a year-long Hollywood film series. We've done lectures, that sort of thing. In this concluding year, in 2018, we have a couple of interesting music programs. Just upcoming on Saturday, June 9th, we have The Yanks Are Coming, The Songs of World War I. And this is really an interesting combination lecture concert about popular song in World War I. A gentleman called Michael Lasser, who is a well-known author and lecturer, will be coming to uh, talk about how social change caused by World War I was reflected in the music of the time. So it'll be a concert, but also one that really shares some insight into what these uh, uh, songs really represented in terms of dramatic social changes that were caused by the First World War. And the music really was a reflection of the time, at the time. Does the museum have any specific activities planned for the Armistice Centennial? Uh, yes, uh, we uh, have, uh, of course, the Artist Soldiers Exhibition continues, and that will be the concluding weekend of the exhibition. It actually opened on April 6, 2017 and closes on November 11, 2018, so it mirrors the American period. We also, at our Stephen F. Udvar-Hazy Center, we have our Mall National Air and Space Museum building, and we have our second building out by Dulles Airport, the Udvar-Hazy Center. We'll be having a World War I-focused family day, so we'll have lots of educational events for families and young people. That is on November 3rd, which is a little bit before the Armistice Weekend. We also have another music program on November 10th over the Armistice Weekend. And this is a more of a classical music performance. It's called Silent Night, a World War I Memorial and Song. And two classical performers, John Brancy and Peter Dugan, singer and pianist, interpret a variety of songs that were all composed during the First World War. So that will be an evening program on November the 10th part of our concluding events through that weekend. The museum has really wonderful ways for people who aren't in Washington to enjoy your content as well. Could you tell our audience a bit about how they can enjoy the museum in other ways? Of course, the National Air and Space Museum has a website. If you just simply go to Air and Space, put in those words into your search engine, you'll get uh, the website of the National Air and Space Museum. One of the things that we have featured on the website is the online version of the Artist Soldiers exhibition. So you can see all of the artworks and the other artifacts that are in the exhibition on the website. We will be uh, live webcasting uh, this Saturday's uh, uh, program, The Yanks Are Coming, uh, our uh, popular song presentation. Uh, that's at 2 p.m. on Saturday, June 9th. So you can catch that live on the webcast there as well as, uh, of course, all of our uh, World War I uh, aircraft and uh, other associated material can be accessed on the website as well. So you can learn about all of the wonderful original World War I aircraft that we have in the collection and on display by going to the website as well. Well, Dr. Jacob, thank you so much for all the great focus that you're bringing to the centennial of World War I and for coming on the podcast and telling us about it. 
My pleasure. Thank you for letting me share what we have going on at the National Air and Space Museum. Dr. Peter Jacob is the chief curator at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Learn more about the museum and its World War I programs and exhibitions at the links in the podcast notes. This week in Updates from the States. We're headed to a state we don't automatically associate with World War I, but the connections are deep. It's New Mexico, the land of enchantment. To tell us about New Mexico and World War I is Jeff Loudermilk, Deputy Chairman of the New Mexico World War I Centennial Commission. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Taylor. I appreciate the opportunity. So, Jeff, let me start with your state in World War I. Now, you were just two years old when World War I broke out. What was New Mexico like 100 years ago, and how did you participate in the war effort? Well, this is a great question with a great answer. Uh, <laughs> New Mexico became a state in 1912. A good place to start is the Pancho Villa raid on the tiny border town of Columbus, New Mexico on March the 9th, 1916. This led to the punitive expedition with General Pershing, who was a brigadier general at the time. So there's a lot going on with this raid, and almost every state in the Union sent National Guard. Of course, New Mexico was part of this story. We've just been a state for four years, but the National Guard was sent to secure the border. So there is an interesting story here. After the war began, the New Mexico National Guard was split into the 40th Division and the 41st Division. And in particular, in the 41st Division, these fellows were from Roswell, New Mexico, and they had come from a artillery unit that was actually on the border with the Pancho Villa episode, and they stayed together within the 41st Division as the 146th Field Artillery, Battery A. They fought as New Mexicans, so it's very unique for our state. About how many people served from New Mexico during the war? There were right around 17,000 New Mexicans that were in the war and went to France. At that time, there were around 380,000. That was the total population of the state. And so that comes out to about 4.5% of the population went off to war. Wow. And, and of course, that was the men of households. That was a really large, large number of people. Yes, indeed it was. And looking at the divisions and what I know about World War I, there were New Mexicans in every battle the United States was in. At war's end, there were 560 New Mexicans that lost their lives. 93 of those are buried in Europe in the American Battle Monuments Commission cemeteries. New Mexico's World War I Centennial Commission was only just recently established. Can you tell us about that? We formed the commission about six months ago. I've been working on establishing the commission for some time. I've had a nice friendship with Chris Christopher with the National Commission. Through Chris, I knew about the commission, I knew about the states and how it all came together. And I had been talking with my good friend, retired Brigadier General Jack Fox, and my friend, Major General Ken Nava. We had a wonderful meeting with a group of us at the New Mexico History Museum. It was hosted by Andy Wolf, who's the director of the museum. And 
here we have this room full of dynamic people all trying to get on the same page with what do we do with World War One? And I remember I said, we have our commission. <laughs> so <laughs> it came together right there. We've had a lot of enthusiasm and we really have a dynamic, terrific group. It's just a joy to work with all these fellows. So what kind of programs are the commission planning? Our agenda is largely based on education and public awareness. And as programs are being developed this summer and getting ready for the fall school year, I'll be kind of that link between the National Commission and our public school system. There's one more thing that's a highlight. What we'd like to do is over the next few years, we want to develop or sponsor a World War I memorial in New Mexico. We currently don't have a World War I monument or memorial. We want to have something that we can leave behind so when we close down the commission in a few years, we really have something that's going to be lasting. So, Jeff, what other programs do you have? On August the 25th, the commission is sponsoring a day-long World War I symposium at our New Mexico History Museum. Really a fun part of this, Dennis Reinhartz, who is the New Mexican Historical Society president, he's on our commission, his great uncle fought in the German army. So he's going to put together a presentation. And then I also give a slideshow presentation based on my book, Honoring the Doughboys. It's called Honoring the Doughboys Following My Grandfather's World War I Diary where you retraced your grandfather's journey through Europe. Can you give us a quick overview of that, that whole story? When my grandfather passed away, 1983, and my mother gave me his World War I diary and his division book. Over time, I got just absolutely fascinated with all this. In 2002, I thought, you know, I've got to go over there. So it became from a curiosity to a passion to a way of life. And I've had a just a, a marvelous time with, with this adventure. It was published in late 2014, and it's currently for sale on the U.S. Commission's website. I received a nice endorsement from the Commission as well, so I'm extremely proud of that. New Mexico is really lucky to have a person with your passion and your focus on this to help bring everybody together. And congratulations on the commission and the new website, and you're doing great stuff. Thank you, Teo. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate that very much. The New Mexico and World War I website can be found at www.cc.org slash New Mexico. All one word, all lowercase. Jeff Loudermilk is an author and the deputy chairman of the New Mexico World War I Centennial Commission. Learn more about New Mexico and World War I by going to their website or by following the links in the podcast notes. Moving on to our 100 Cities, 100 Memorial segment about the $200,000 matching grant challenge to rescue and focus on local World War I memorials. This week, we're crossing the Pacific to Honolulu, Hawaii. Now, Hawaii's been in the news a lot for weeks, with volcano eruptions on the Big Island. But Hawaii was also in the news 100 years ago this week, when on June 4th, 1918, the Secretary of War announced with a headline that read, Hawaiian National Guard adds 3,200 men to Army. Now, Hawaii wasn't even a state yet. 
but a force of 3,200 men were to be added to the army from a proclamation by President Wilson, placing the Hawaiian National Guard in service. They weren't actually planning to send these forces to France, but rather to relieve the forces that the U.S. Army had stationed there, freeing them up for deployment. According to the article in the official bulletin, the Hawaiian forces were genuinely cosmopolitan, with Native Hawaiians, Americans, Filipinos, Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, and more. After the war, Hawaii dedicated a large swimming venue as a World War I memorial. It's called the Natatorium. And here to tell us about the venue, its restoration, and its designation as a World War I Centennial Memorial is Donna Ching, Vice Chairman of Hawaii's World War I Centennial Task Force. She's also the Vice President of the Friends of the Natatorium, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the preservation of the ocean pool known as Hawaii's Living War Memorial. Donna, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Teo. I'm so happy to be here. So, Donna, what is the Natatorium? The War Memorial Natatorium is a 100-meter by 40-meter double Olympic-sized saltwater pool sitting on the shoreline of Waikiki at the foot of Diamond Head. And it's a bow art design construction. It's quite beautiful and has this lovely arched facade that people walk into and bleachers that I'm told will hold 1,500 people, but on opening night, there were 7,000 people packed in there, so you can imagine how crazy it was. It really became, in addition to a place where very serious international swimmers trained and competed, it became this gathering place for the community. Back in the 1920s and 30s and even into the 40s, much of Waikiki shoreline did not look the way it did. So there wasn't as much shoreline, and what shoreline there was was privately owned. Now, of course, today, there are no privately owned beaches in the entire state of Hawaii. But back then, the resorts owned the beaches. So the regular people, local folks and kids, couldn't go to the beaches really that easily. The Natatorium was a place that welcomed people of all incomes, of all ethnicities, and I think so well lived up to the intention of the conceiving community as a living memorial that was a gathering place for people. It made history of its own as a competitive swimming venue, as a gathering place for the community. I mean, it's just a very important thing for us. Well, you know, it's referred to as a living memorial. Why is that? There were a lot of other civilian contributions as well. And so the idea that we should have a living memorial that also honors the service and sacrifice of those who died as well as those who volunteered and that people should be manifestly enjoying the freedom won by the Great War in a Vahipana, which is a sacred place, was the idea that the conceiving committee had. When the question was posed to this committee, what do we do to honor Hawaii's World War I effort? Hawaii was coming on to the international scene as an international swimming powerhouse. And of course, we're an island state surrounded by water, and we have a storied swimming and surfing legacy. So the thought was, why not have a memorial that people can actually go into and use and celebrate life and liberty? So I think that that was the inspiration for why a living memorial with a swimming pool as opposed to statuary, as an example. You know, Donna, I think most people have never really thought about Hawaii in World War I, but there really do seem to be a surprising number of connections. 
Well, you know, it's really interesting, and thanks for that well-researched lead-in about Hawaii's role in the Great War, or at least part of it. Actually, our connection to World War One goes back even further to the trigger for the U.S. entry into the war, the SS Aztec. The U.S.-flagged merchant mariner ship was sunk by a German U-boat on April 1st, 1917. On that merchant mariner ship, Six of the 29 men who perished in that sinking were from Hawaii. The war was actually quite personal for us, and I think that that is part of why our patriotic response, even though we were not even a state, we were just barely even a territory, we still had a queen on the throne, and yet our response to the World War I call for volunteers was enormous. More than 10,000 contributed to the war effort including, of course, the military combatants. There was so much outpouring of volunteerism towards the Great War by the territory of Hawaii. I would argue that it was one of the greatest in the country. So tell me a little bit about the effort to restore the memorial. Long and roller coasterish. <laughs> <laughs> so after the heyday, it fell into disrepair and was ultimately closed in 1979. Efforts to both restore and demolish the memorial started back then. So for the last 40 years, we've had the pendulum swinging back and forth between demolition efforts and restoration efforts. I would say the highlights of those efforts included a Supreme Court ruling to block demolition. So that helped us a lot. Fast forward to today, we're at the World War I centennial. And I can't tell you what a bright white hot spotlight this shines on this issue of what are we doing with our war memorial. We're really grateful for the designation from the 100 Cities 100 Memorials Program because it does help emphasize the relevance of our living memorial in the context of a global event. Rumor has it that you have big plans for the Armistice Centennial coming up on 11-11. Our plan for our centennial in Hawaii is to reopen our War Memorial Natatorium to the public for the first time since 1979. Now, obviously, we can't fix a pool that nobody's been able to fix for 40 years. But what we are doing is making it safe for people to get up onto those bleachers. We're going to be putting a stage in the middle of that pool, and we're going to have our Veterans Day service on the 100th anniversary of Armistice in our living memorial that has been closed since 1979. Now, why this is important is that two generations have passed now in 40 years that have never seen the inside of that place. I believe that the mere allowing of people inside to see that place will inspire a new wave of interest in preservation. Exposing, I think, the War Memorial Natatorium, Hawaii's World War I history, and all of what the living memorial means or should mean to people, to a couple of generations of people, is going to be hugely important for the preservation of all of that history. Donna, it's a great story. It's about Hawaii. It's about the centennial. It's about the armistice. And for me, maybe most important, it's about passion for local heritage driven by World War One. Thank you for bringing it to us. Thanks, Teo. I think it's one of Hawaii's great treasures and we want to share it with the world. Donna Ching, Vice Chairman of Hawaii's World War I Centennial Task Force. Learn more about the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program by following the link in the podcast notes. That brings us to The Buzz, 
the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what are this week's picks? I wanted to share a couple great resources and exhibits this week. In the fall, we let you know about the Department of Homeland Security's World War I poster series, which highlights the historic roles of the DHS components, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, Customs and Border Protection, Secret Service, Coast Guard, and other legacy agencies. Well, the folks at DHS have now published these posters as files on their website that you can download so the public can easily access them. They're a wonderful, free educational resource, and you can check them out at the link included in the podcast notes. Additionally, there's a new exhibit open at the Library of Virginia in the state's capital of Richmond. The exhibit is called True Sons of Freedom, and it explores the stories of Virginia's African-American soldiers who served during World War I, and it'll be on view to the public through November 9th, 2018. I've also included a link to the exhibit's website in the podcast notes. The exhibit's website is a great resource for anyone who can't quite make it to Richmond. It includes profiles and photographs of dozens of Virginian men who served in the conflict. Finally, this week included June 6th, well known as the anniversary of the World War II landings at Normandy, D-Day. But June also marks the anniversary of some of the most bloody and intense fighting American soldiers have ever faced, fighting at Bellowood. The battle forged the modern-day Marine Corps, and you can read an article recently put out by the Washington Post and included in the podcast notes. It highlights the fighting in Bellow Wood from 100 years ago and contextualizes its importance to modern day. And that's it this week for The Buzz. And that wraps up episode number 75 of World War I Centennial News. Thank you so much for joining us. We also want to thank our guests, Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog, Dr. Edward Langle, military historian and author, Meredith Carr, deputy director of the World War I Centennial Commission, Dr. Peter Jacob, chief curator at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., Jeff Loudermilk, deputy chairman of the New Mexico World War I Centennial Commission, Donna Ching, vice president of the Friends of the Natatorium, Catherine Akey, World War I photography specialist and the line producer for our podcast. Many thanks to Mac Nelson, our hardworking sound editor. And I'm Teo Mare, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I, including this podcast. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms, and we're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as the Star Foundation for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org cn. That's Charlie Nancy. Now with our new interactive transcript feature. You can also access the World War I Centennial News podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Podbean, Stitcher, Radio On Demand, Spotify, using your smart speaker by saying, play WW1 Centennial News podcast. And now also available on YouTube. Just search for our WW1 Centennial YouTube channel. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. 
Thank you for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here today about the war that changed the world. In closing, we just want to welcome all of our new summer interns at the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission. And we have somebody here to welcome you. Hey, Gunny, we haven't heard from you in a long time. Shut up, you maggot. Okay, interns, listen up. Welcome to World War I Centennial Boot Camp. I don't want to see any of you trying to spit polish your tennis shoes. You got it? Interns, dismissed. (laughs) Thanks, Gunny. So long.